This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Dr. Robert Osazua Ness is an adjunct at the Northeastern University, uh, an ML research engineer at Gamelon, and the founder of Alt Deep School of AI. He holds a PhD in statistics. He studied at John Hopkins and then at Purdue University. Robert, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so how do you describe your area of interest? Uh, sure. I focus at on the intersection of causal modeling and probabilistic modeling and machine learning. And focus, and my, I'd say that I, my, a big goal of mine is to introduce more causal reasoning methods uh, into mach- the machine learning community, particularly when it comes to uh, generative models within machine learning. So can you tell us uh, a bit about your PhD thesis? Uh, I think it had to do with causal models in system biology. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Like, so kind of the story there for is, so prior to my PhD, I was living in China. I worked at some internet companies and I got interested in working with data and, you know, engineering data-driven apps. So that's what drew me to statistics I also had read a few books at the time on uh, synthetic biology and and uh, you know, this idea that you could use symbolic logic, like you can code a program into biological circuits and it would you know serve some function. And so that was that was the research that I was interested in working on when I started my PhD, and and so I ended up working on problems in systems biology because you know statistical inference. Is so systems, if, if, if synthetic biology is about engineering cells, systems biology is about reverse engineering them. And so the reverse engineering problem, uh, inference techniques become much more important. And so and part of a, a, you know, a big area in systems biology is this attempt to take data and reconstruct molecular pathways uh, or even uh, go from a uh, build a pathway model and even turn that model into something that can actually simulate data. Uh, and so that's, that's what drove me to causal inference. Uh, so, in, um, so one thing that you can do there, one approach is to take data, say for example, of um, you know, protein signaling within a cell and apply algorithms that will reconstruct cause and effect relationships between various components of that system. So some people see actually in the systems biology community, they, they, they call that causal inference more, more precisely that's structure learning or causal discovery. And so my PhD research was trying to take causal discovery algorithms and you, and, 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 and sconce them in a, experimental and a sequential experimental design framework so that uh, experimentalists could actually use these techniques to drive scientific discovery. Uh, so you know, that, the way that happened was like there was this woman named Karen Sachs. She pioneered this method of using causal Bayesian network learning algorithms to reconstruct signaling pathways. And it was funny because I had read this paper and I was, you know, I was really inspired by it. And then not shortly after I ran into her at a conference, I didn't know who she was. It was just, 
we were watching a talk. We both thought it was boring. So we snuck out to get the, to the, the little coffee food tables before everybody else did beat the rush. And so we just started chatting each other up and then she introduced herself and I'm like, Oh my God, that's who that is. And so we actually became collaborators and we're still really good friends. And, um, but, and so I, I, so I ended up taking her methods and wrapping them with an active learning framework that would allow you to say, okay, well, I'm not so much interested in kind of getting this big old hairy causal graph. I really want to kind of drive some kind of reward function, say, for example, some new discovery, some hypothesis that has a low probability of being true and then turns out to be true, for example, and then you get a paper and then the accolades and the funding and all that great stuff that comes after. So I, t- and so I, I built that active learning framework around that. And, and so, and so you can, you can, it was a Bayesian active learning approach that would allow you to, to take causal discovery and, and operationalize it essentially. And so that was my first introduction to causal modeling and to reinforcement learning in so far as active learning is a special case of reinforcement learning. So you had an agent that was maximizing your funding. Well, that's well. I <laughs> I was building an agent for people who need to maximize funding. Personally, I will never. I guarantee you, I'll never work on another grant application while I, while I live. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sure there's a lot behind that statement. <laughs> so, so it seems like uh, causality uh, became a really hot topic over the f- uh, past few years in uh, the ML community, and 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 I and I can't help but wonder why something so so fundamental took took a really long time. Um, for everyone to get around to and and think about clearly. Have any comments on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. So, I think one is the problem of transfer learning. We we, we basically, I think, we're all kind of starting to realize that trading for a loss function that optimizes predictive performance is insufficient to give you good transferability and or 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 stable or stable performance of your model um, across environments and and there are lots of ways that we're trying to address that and we've used a lot of heuristics uh, say for example um, ways of of trying to avoid overfitting but I think we're we're realizing that even that doesn't really get us to where we want to go. I also think there's a, it's there's been a lot there's been a cultural gap between the people who've worked on these causal inference problems this causal inference research community and the machine learning community. I think that uh, you're working on different problems so causal inference people tend to be working on problems in social sciences and public health. Uh, the ML community is you know when the ML community writes papers they're often looking at specific data sets or milestones and trying to define performance against doing doing well on on those uh, uh, benchmarks. There's also, I think there's different stakes, right? So, and, and different epistemological values. So what do I mean that by that? I mean, I think that, you know, causal inference researchers focus very much on objective truth, right? So, and because the stakes are high, because they're working on problems in policy and health, right? So if I say that, you know, if I if I'm talking about does smoking cause cancer, that's you know that's a, that's a problem that's going to affect people's lives. It's also going to affect the bottom line of 
some major corporations is also going to uh, affect public health policy. So you want to you want to make sure that you're right that the cost of being wrong there is expensive, uh, and uh, and of and it, not just in terms of money but in terms of of life often. Uh, and and so because of that focus on on objective truth, there's there's uh, a lot of emphasis on mathematical rigor. In contrast, I think the machine learning community is focused on predictive performance and, and benchmarks because they're trying to push the state of the art, right? And if it if something works extremely well and we don't have a mathematical theory for why it works that well, that's okay. So long as we know, as long as we have a, tra a trajectory for for moving forward. And also, we're we're often not looking. You know, if you look at so that I mean, that kind of characterizes deep learning, but there's a other branches of of um, uh, machine learning. Say, for example, you know, latent variable models, uh, models in machine learning that are inspired by computational uh, psychology, where the idea is, you know, we want we have this model for how the system works. Say, for example, a topic model, like a document is is driven by the topics that are present in the document. We know that's incomplete. We know that's incomplete, right? We know that's not. We know that we we know that's not entirely true. We know that there's other there's many other things that go into what what uh, you know what determines a document, but it that model might be good enough for the problem that we're trying to solve. Uh, alternatively, if you're if you're taking a kind if you're taking the approach to the computational cognitive science approach of saying like all right well. I want to, I want to build AI. Here's how humans. Here's my theory about how humans reason about the problem. Let me build a model that can duplicate that. Uh, and so, you know, because if you you know what's that's a good way of maybe building AI, which is to say like, well, let's look at real AI and see if we can't if we can't reverse engineer it. And so that's um, again, that's not about being you know that that real human who's making those judgments or those decisions or those predictions might be wrong, but you're not interested in whether or not the prediction is right or wrong. You're interested in, in how faithful you can replicate the way the human reasons because the human in intelligence, uh, you know, it's pretty good. So uh, those are two different views on, uh, or th those are two different sets of values and two different uh, sets of goals. And so I think that creates a kind of cultural divide that makes it difficult for the you know if you're interested in if you if you're work if you're a machine learning researcher and you have some problem that you want to solve and you want to dive into the and realize that you need some kind of causal inference solution and so you want to go dive into the causal inference literature it's it's a little bit opaque because they're not only talking about different things but they have a whole different set of values and a different set of goals um, and I think also it, it should be mentioned that that there's different workflows right so you know, deep learning has led to in a, you know the, uh, very strong Im improvements in the in the state of the art and and that's led to this this workflow where you kind of focus on mapping raw data to the output right you just kind of you you want to have end to end machine learning and you don't want to kind of reconstruct a new model each time you just want to kind of have a a, a, a you want to have the right 
architecture with the right inductive bias for the right problem, uh, apply it to the raw inputs and, 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 and predict the outputs, whatever it is, the label, the uh, reward, whatever. And everything, you just let, you let gradient descent just take care of everything in between, right? And that doesn't work in causality because you have to make explicit structural causal, you have to make explicit structural assumptions about how the system works. And, and, you know, so you, and there are people in machine learning who are trying to, say, uh, avoid that by, say, for example, using deep learning approaches to learn causal structure which will, from data, which would allow you to, in theory, kind of skip the structural assumptions because you're learning the structure. But there are some, we can, it's, it's mathematically proven that there are some assumptions that you can't learn from data. Right, uh, not without some kind of inductive bias, and that inductive bias tends to need to be provided um, uh, in some explicit way to the modeling algorithm. Uh, you're, you're not going to get it kind of implicitly through, you know, you know, max pooling or or um, you know, attention. Right, it's not going to come off. Uh, it's not going to just just come out of some off-the-shelf DL architecture. Hmm. Knock on wood, I think that's true. I mean, maybe tomorrow they come up with some new architecture that 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 solves everything. But I but but you, you can you can point to the math and say like, now listen, this is you can't, here's the thing that you can't learn from data. If you want to uh, algorithmize this, you're you're very going to at least have to put some kind of inductive bias or some kind of you know Bayesian prior on that thing. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And and that and a lot of our end-to-end -end machine learning workflows don't really admit that kind of. Uh, that don't really have that kind of interface. So that's that's my that's my theory. I think there's other reasons too, um, but um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, if you spend a lot of time thinking about Atari and Majoko environments, <laughs> um, it seems like notions of causality are kind of optional in a sense. Like you can get so far without doing that stuff. And you might just forget that it's there if you're not dealing with this messy real real world data with the with uh, with, with d domain shifts and things like that. Is that fair to say? Like in Atari, do you care what caused the death of your agent? Does your does your agent care what causes death um, beyond um, the immediate actions it needs to take to optimize? You know, one world? of the things that I've been I've been kind of harping other researchers and you know who are talking about causal inference in the in the domain of AI and artificial and, and, and machine learning I say you know they often come up with papers with these little t nice little toy models like you know a little four node DAG or uh, a uh, you know structural causal model with with you know a linear assumption and I'm saying to yourself like you show this to a machine learning person they're gonna scoff like they're this is not the kind you know these simple little little pocket models they might be useful for kind of proving proving some idea causal inferences causal inference people do this a lot because they're like oh look here's this little tiny network and let me show you how this be you know how you can kind of uh if you try to estimate things a certain way then you can kind of go completely in the wrong direction and that's useful because it's a very simple way of, of showing how things can go wrong but they're off these 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 little tiny models are often i don't know they feel a bit contrived and so if you, I, I would say like, if you have an idea for how, for how this thing could, have, could improve sequential decision-making under uncertainty, implement it in open AI. 
right? Like don't go for the simplest model possible. Go for the simplest, simplest model possible in, in, the, uh, in, in OpenAI Gym. Right, so you know, use a frozen lake example. Uh, use uh, you know use what's the game where they're shooting the aliens when they're coming down? Um, Space invaders. Uh, Space invaders. Uh, you know use uh, use one of those simple. I mean those are still those are still simple, right? They're Atari mm-hmm. games. I mean it's not like we're it's not like you're you know you're playing cyberpunk, right? So it's it's um and, and those games have a, a there is co- so there's a, a reinforced learning course by Charles Isbell and um, on, uh, I think it's on, I don't know, EDX or something. But anyway, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that he says in that work, in that course that's interesting is that uh, the, so Charles Isbell, when he explains the transition function in the Bellman equations, he says, you know, this, this thing encaps, encapsulates the, uh, the physics. I, I, actually, I don't remember if it was Charles Isbell or Mike, Michael Littman that says this, but anyway, he says that the, the uh, transition function encap, encapsulates the physics of the world, right? And so there should be some connection between causality and physics, hopefully, right? So I would say that the physics of the Atari game is, a, is the causal specification of that system, right? And so if you could, and so you could, in theory, uh, yeah, if you, if you had an age you had a learner who was, uh, who knew in a model based reinforcement learning, appro- uh, model based reinforcement learning approach had some kind of knowledge of the physics of the underlying system, uh, the game that it's playing then could, uh, certainly reason causally about, about you know, um, about which, how its actions are going to affect the environment. Um, but to your point, I think, and, and you might, and so you might think, you might think to yourself, well, you know, like that seems like a lot, like should every agent have an understanding of the, of the underlying physics of the world that is, that is, is operating in? And the answer could be, oh, it depends, right? Like, so if we look at cognitive science, there's, there's uh, a lot to be said about this idea that humans have an intuitive physics and you know they have a or folk physics um, model in their head when it comes to understanding um, you know physical objects and their interactions. So cars hitting deer, billiard balls bouncing off the sides of a table, uh, and they they also say that humans have you know a, a quote unquote kind of intuitive quote unquote physics for other domains like uh, an intu- intuitive psychology, for example. Like you could you and I could be sitting at a cafe and watch some some couple across the cafe have a, have a conversation and we would make pretty good inferences about that conversation uh, based on a theory of, you know, an intuitive, an intuitive theory of, of psychology that we're able to, that we're applying there, that we're not, we didn't really learn from data. We're just kind of born with it. And so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for a kind of a model based approach that has a, 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 or the transition function is kind of driven by some kind of domain physics. Um, but to your point, the problem of trying to train something in a simulated environment and then taking it out of the simulated environment and having it work in reality, say, for example, you know, robots, uh, often, the, often the reason why this, has, this is hard to do can be characterized in causal terms, which is to say that, you know, when you create a... When you create a simulation environment, you try to make, 
you try to reduce the all the variables in the system to to only those that are that you think the the uh, agent needs to be worrying about. And so, if you're wrong about that, if there are some things the agent needs to worry about that you've excluded from the simulation system, that uh, that would that could hurt that agent or affect that agent in the real world, then it's going to then you're going to have an issue. And 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 in causal inference terms, we call this the problem of of confounding by you know or latent confounders. So that's two aspects of how causality kind of comes into play there. So how do you define the idea of cause? Like. Why are we doing the show today? Is it because we clicked on the interview link or because you're a successful researcher or because of the Big Bang? How do we think about what really caused something? I mean, it's a good question. So for one, we have to kind of be uh, recognize that philosophers have been trying to define and parse causality for like millennia now, right? Like even Buddha had a definition of causality, right? And so... Uh, so, you know, I think oftentimes people would just kind of want to focus on, on kind of bread and butter machine learning problems where they want to focus on the math and it's, it, it gets, they get a little bit uncomfortable when, when you, when you delve into philosophy. Um, but unfortunately here you have to, uh, actually, I think fortunately you have to, because it's, it's actually really interesting to be talking about kind of what's, um, you know, what does it mean for a, something to be a cause? What does it mean for something to be effect? Um, you know, these are this is right up there with those kinds of other philosophical problems of data science, machine learning, like you know the problem of induction, for example. Um, it, and it's relevant today in terms of you know how people approach causal problems. Uh, say, for example, there's there's a few dichotomies here. Like so, um, there is something called there's a, there's a there's a manipulabi- uh, manipul- excuse me manipulability theory of causality and there's a counterfactual theory of causality. So the manipulability means that um, say A and B are correlated, but if I do something to A, B is affected. But if I do something to B and, and A is not affected, then A causes B. You know, and, and then somebody might object to that and say, well, the problem with that argument is that you're defining cause, causality by, or, or your definition of causality requires the presence of a human agent, right? But presumably things cause things to happen on Mars and has nothing to do with us, right? And so another competing theory there might be the counterfactual theory of causality where you say, um, yeah, A and B move together um, and... Um, a did this, and th- so I, I observed that A did this, and then B had this. Uh, B uh, B did that, but had A not done this, B would not have done that, right? So that's a counterfactual definition. Uh, there's other there's other philosophical aspects to it. So like there's a teleological understanding of causality. So for example, if I ask you why is this knife sharp, you might say. Because it was sharpened on a wet uh, on a whetstone, or you might say because it is it is it is supposed to cut things cut things in half, right? And so those um, you know, so there we're talking about you know is is were is causality there in terms of mechanism, or is it there in terms of function? Uh, we have we have dependence notions of causality, which says that um, you know this is what you might think of with the with the directed graph, where you have uh, 
you're, you're, you're basically trying to boil down causality into ideas of, of things being dependent on one, uh, one another or things being conditionally independent of one another. Um, there's this idea of type causality and, uh, and, and actual causality. So again, type causality is, again, what you might, is, is what we typically see in when we draw a graph, like we say smoking causes cancer. Well, type cause, uh, well actual causality is focused on uh, the uh, events, uh, on outcomes, right? So like Eli has, Eli smoked for 20 years and as a result, he has this kind of cancer, Right, and so um, uh, so there's a there's a lot to kind of unpack there when we're trying to define uh, causality and um, the examples that you gave. So you were saying like, um, is it because somebody clicked the link, or is it because of my background, or is it because of you know my mother gave birth to me? Uh, so this that's actually an example of proximal cause. So this is a legal term, um, uh, but it means and we and we have a formal definition of it in causal inference, but you know. The colloquial legal, or rather the legal term, the more popular term is proximal cause. But it's, it's, uh, you know, if, if you know, would the Holocaust have happened had hit, uh, Hitler's mother not met Hitler's father? Um, it wouldn't have happened, and yet uh, we, or or probably wouldn't have happened, and yet we could, uh, you know, we wouldn't blame Hitler's mother and father for this for that outcome. So. Uh, or at least their meats for that outcome. Or, and so, um, that, so that's the idea of proximal cause, which is really important when you're trying to ask why something happened or assign blame or, um, you know, in reinforcement learning terms, figure out to regret. So you teach about both uh, Rubin's potential outcomes framework and also Judea Pearl's structural causal models. Can you um, talk about the kind of these two frameworks? Uh, should they coexist? Do we need them both? Yeah, so you know, this is you know, people talk about this. I think what I'll say is that there is theorem equivalence between both approaches, which means that you know the axiom the axioms are, set, are such that if you can solve, if you can use the potential outcomes framework to solve a problem, then you can also solve it in the Perlian framework and vice versa. And so, you know, it's practically. You know, practically, they'll, they'll differ in terms of like how easy it is to solve a, solve a problem, and that of course depends on the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, I like to think of it as um, you know the, the difference between functional programming and object-oriented programming, for example. There's, there's nothing that you can do in one paradigm that you can't do in the other, but you might prefer to solve certain problems in one program and one paradigm uh, relative to the other for various personal reasons. Like maybe it's one way is funner for you and. Uh, um, as well as practical reasons, right? Like maybe, um, uh, you know, if you're working with a, I don't know, if you're working with, I don't know, if you, maybe OOP is better if you're working with a, um, you know, a database schema, and, and so it's easy to think about things in terms of um, entities and attributes. Uh, yeah, so like I, I, I think one needs to think about it from, in, in those terms, like what is, you know, what is best for the class of problems that you're trying to solve. There's a lot of practical differences, so, one, for me, one of the key distinguishing features of the Perlian approach is that it makes a crystal clear distinction between causal ideas and statistical ideas. And in contrast, the, the potential outcomes literature focuses closely on the statistics. And so, so what does that mean? So number one, that making that clear distinction, so if I... If for me, when I want to teach you how to reason causally about your system, it's nice if I can separate the causal ideas from the statistical ideas because uh, 
The statistical ideas I can tell you to go look up in a, a stats book, right? While the causal ideas, you know, we can focus on and it makes it easier for you to learn, especially if you don't have a background in, you know, statistics or economics or social science. And so it doesn't feel like you're having to pick up a new, you know, master's degree just to learn how to solve, you know, a, how to apply causal reasoning to your problem. But also it's... Um, it, it provides a nice unifying framework for thinking about uh, various problems that you might face within uh, uh, causal inference. Like, say, for example, I often teach economists, and economists, when you learn e economics, you learn a bunch of causal inference techniques that are very much methods, right? They're not, they don't have any, like, you don't really know what the theory is behind them. They're just like, you know, here's the problem that you, you have this kind of problem, use this type of methodology, and you know you have that problem use that methodology you don't really have any overarching link in your head that explains all of these and why they work and and the Perlian approach does that so the example might be propensity score matching uh, which you know is a it's a technique for adjusting for confounding and it's really easy for me to if uh, to come to you from a Perlian standpoint and, and explain to you using graphs and, and ideas like de-separation, how exactly propensity score matching works. Um, and so like I, that's often a win for me when I work with people with, econo with economics or econometrics background and I can finally explain to them or uh, tie together all of these causal inference methods they're using with the, and they don't actually know why they work. Um, but on the other hand, um, the potential outcomes approach is extremely practical, right? So they, like I said, they focus on the stats, which is important when you actually need to solve a problem, which, you know, so for, say for example, like you work at a tech company and you need to construct some, uh, all right, so using a, a reinforcement learning example, like let's say that, um, you know, you're, you're, you, are, you are a marketer and you need to construct some kind of email, sequential email campaign that's going to send you emails and the content of the email and the time that the email is sent depends on, you know, whether or not the previous emails were opened. And, um, you know, maybe the reward is not just that they click on the email, but maybe they go and they, you know, engage on a website, right? And engagement is, you know, like you're going to say, all right, well, in, in my company, we quantify engagement by quantifying how much time they spend on the site over two weeks and then just like taking the area under that curve or something like that. So you have, you know, a you have this response that's probably tricky to model parametrically. You have you have some kind of confounding that's happened. That confounding is it depends on time, right? And so you need to adjust for that confounding. And so you so you might go and say, I'm going to go and construct some kind of instrumental variable. So I'm throwing words out there, but this is just the technique that people use. Um, you know, I'm going to find some instrumental variable, and you know, so you know, you, in order to find that instrument, you, you have these certain instruments available to you, uh, and you have to kind of figure out exactly how to how to make it all work. Like the potential outcomes literature will provide papers that kind of say, here's how you solve when you have this kind of data and you have this kind of problem, this, here's how you solve the problem. And, and by the way, like it's going to be really nice because it's going to reduce variance and it's going to, and you can get there. It's going to converge very quickly. Um, you know, Perley and stuff never talks about any of that. They just, they just, uh, they don't, they, they assume that you can solve your own kind of statistical and parametric modeling issues and focus on the high level concepts. Um, and that's fine. And so it's, it really kind of depends on, on how you want to approach it. Like one, an example I was thinking about kind of 
our conversation today, and I, I remember reading um, Rich Sutton's uh, The Bitter Lesson, that essay, you know what I'm talking about? That essay he writes about yeah. how... And I, let me ask you, because I... Because I, whenever I try and talk about this with people, I think sometimes that um, the under, the interpretation of the paper right, it depends on kind of how you. It's, it's almost the the essay is a little bit uh, uh, kind of a a mirror that reflects kind of your own <laughs> prior beliefs going into the essay. But um, the way I my takeaway from the paper was that I guess it's really more of a blog post. But it, it, that uh, if there is a brute force computational method that can solve a problem and you're thinking about an alternative method for solving the problem that incorporates domain knowledge and you're thinking about it because that domain knowledge might make it more efficient it might solve the problem faster or more easily with 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 uh, um, less kind of computational work don't do it because eventually the compute is just going to get cheaper and, it will, and, and the cost will become moot while you have wasted your time trying to come up with this domain, this domain knowledge-based approach. Is that, is, that kind of, is that a good takeaway or a good read? I, I, I read it in a similar way, for sure. But I agree with you. I think it's like, um, it's like those inkblot tests that just tell you what you're <laughs> thinking about. You can kind of read so many things into it. I mean, just, just what you've been saying so far today... Um, when I compare that to the blog post, like you were saying that there's certain types of information that you can't learn from data. So right. adding more data doesn't actually get you there. And so maybe the bitter lesson doesn't fully apply in cases where you need some extra, some, some information outside of the data, like, like the causal DAG. Right. I say like, you know, so yeah, my raw shock test for reading that essay as a, as a person with a causal modeling background is that, the what's nice about the Perlian approach is again is it when you when you take that approach to learning it you get this very clear line in your head between causal ideas and statistical ideas and one of the key causal ideas is is that you know this idea of identifiability which is to say that hey you you know you are interested in, in asking questions like why is this happening or what would happen if I did that and what we what we did is we take these we we formalize those ideas with very clear um, def- definitions of things like intervention and counterfactual, and so, and what we've we, we, what we've done is we, we've arrived at a problem, which is to say, like you can't answer those questions with the data you have available to that. It's it's fundamentally not identifiable. That means that you can't answer that question even with infinite data, right? And and so, like this nice separation of of these causal ideas and statistics means that you can evaluate a problem for identifiability um, without the statistical concerns because you know because Rich Hutton's right that if it's once you've solved the identifiability issues once you once you know it's a problem that you can solve that you that you it's a causal query that you can answer then it's just and it's just a matter of coming up with the right statistical approach to answering it and if you can brute force that if you can brute force that approach then great do it um, but if you if it if it if it fundamentally cannot be answered then uh, maybe then you need to th- start thinking about how you can b- you can bring in domain knowledge to close that that gap, right? So, like, if there's some, you know, say for example, I can only solve a problem to some kind of class of values and equivalence class of values, then you know, I then then maybe then I can bring in some kind of uh, domain knowledge in the form of a prior or in the form of some kind of inductive bias uh, that would actually 
turn it from an unsolvable problem into a to a solvable problem, and then I can throw all my compute at it, right? And so um, I, I think so. I think the kind of Perlian approach makes it really easy to think in those terms. Um, but yeah, I you know I use potential outcomes approaches um, all the time, and so um, they come together for me. So um, I, I don't really think there's much to, there's not much much substance to that debate, although other people definitely think there is. Yeah, the the bitter lesson. Uh, keep coming back to that, and it seems like maybe he was talking about something specific, like some part of the problem that you can solve with brute force. But even then, if you look at, you know, um, leading agents today, yeah, they do, their performance does depend on, on huge amounts of data, but also the components of the agent have been carefully hand engineered, um, to make best use of that data. Hmm. So it seems like there's always some kind of, there's always some kind of line between domain knowledge hand design things made by engineers. I mean, even engineers came up with or researchers came up with the CNN design to allow it to allow these agents to uh, benefit from, from brute force. See, I always think of it. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea that of like radical empiricism and and machine learning is a bit of a kind of red herring. I think of it in terms of inductive bias, right? So, you know, Tom Mitchell wrote that, that great paper, I guess, was maybe the '80s about kind of inductive bias and kind of laid it out in these clear Cartesian terms, where you, uh, where you know, he shows you that like if I, you know, there will be multiple solutions to the, to to you know, so if I want to generalize from this this training data, there's there's multiple solutions to this problem, and and, and I need to have my algorithm needs some needs to be able to just pick one over the other ones and so like that's the inductive bias right and so the way and there's a lot of ways we can approach inductive bias we could so we could we could for example if we're being bayesian we can uh encode it into a prior right um the way deep learning architectures tend to do it is make it implicit in the architecture itself so you know convolutions and max pooling right um uh, uh attention these are you know these are inductive biases and and oftentimes what happens is we kind of we get to the these we get to these um we discover kind of what the inductive bias is kind of retrospectively like somebody kind of figures out that hey if you use this architecture then it works why does it work uh let me let's guess let's go look let's analyze oh it's uh it's favoring it seems to you know natural language it does really well with um you know, hierarchy and, and it tends to, um, uh, I don't know, preserve, you know, assume that words that co co-occur tend to be close together or something like that. But like, um, you know, but it, it's still like your inductive bias is just implicit in the architecture. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, in, in your example, like if people are kind of engineering or kind of handcrafting agents, they're, they're essentially trying to say like, okay, when the agent inc inc encounters this situation, it needs to kind of act a certain way. And so all of that is arguably kind of encoding some kind of domain knowledge into the agent. I mean, I think partially what I, sometimes this argument is presented to me, like machine learning engineers don't want to use any kind of domain knowledge at all. And I'm, and I say, I don't think that's true. I say that, I think that they just want to do it once. What does that mean? It means that like, they just want to, 
they don't want to, every time there's a problem they have to answer, they got to construct a new model and put, and put in all these structural, these structural assumptions into it and then like, you know, kind of make bespoke modelings for every problem, models for every problem. I, I think that's a good idea, but most people don't, don't want to do that. They just want to kind of have this, this approach that they can kind of import and then train and then spin up and they just, and, and, um, and they're just comfortable that it's going to adjust to the situation. If you have to kind of, if you write, if you, uh, and so like they'll, 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 they're happy for it to have an inductive bias, like, you know, invariance to translation or, or, or um, like you have with um, convolutional neural networks. Um, so long as they don't have to like re re-implement it each time. And so, but you know, invariance to translation. If you're assuming that your your domain is in, invariant to translation, then it's you're make you're, you're you're putting in some domain knowledge, right? Like if you were modeling Picassos, then it wouldn't work. So you could so you started in in economics and early on, which I gather is mostly focused on on the potential outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I didn't learn honestly. Like I didn't learn any causal inference in when I was studying economics and I said, I didn't learn any causal, I learned a little bit of like, like I said, difference and differences, um, propensity score matching, those kinds of techniques. Like they're basically like, you know, Batman utility belt, um, you know, pull out this technique for when you, when this, in this situation, but you don't, you never really understood what they were doing. But, and so I guess that was a little bit of, uh, my, an introduction to potential outcomes. But again, I never even thought of it as causal inference. It was just like, when this thing happens, do this. When that happens, do that kind of thinking. Even in, during the, um, you know, I got my PhDs in stats. I didn't, they didn't teach us anything about uh, causal inference beyond the uh, gold standard of the clinical trial, right? And so, of randomized clinical trials. And so, mm-hmm. um, or I guess just ordinary randomized um, experiments. Yeah, I, I really, it was all self-taught really. I mean, I mean, it was during my PhD, it was my dissertation, but I, I was taking like, you know, Daphne Kohler's course on Coursera on probabilistic graphical models. I was I was buying books. I was you know I was, I I was writing course, code and yeah. yeah I was writing writing code, submitting the code bases. So like uh, it was I had to kind of pick it up on my own. Cool. Okay, and you definitely did, and now you teach it. <laughs> um, so Gamelon, can we move on to Gamelon? Can you tell us a bit about um, Gamelon and what what you're working on there? Sure. So. Um, yeah, so I work at a an AI setup called Gamelon. Gamelon is focused on building natural language understanding SaaS for sales and marketing. So our flagship con- uh, our flagship product is a conversational AI whose main distinguishing feature is that it tries to understand who it's talking to. I mean, this is me explaining it as you know an engineer who builds it. I'm not sure kind of what uh, you know what's what the uh, what the um, you know go to market people say publicly so if this sounds a little bit different from what you find online so be it but i mean to me the main distinguishing feature is that it's trying to understand who it's talking to what they want to know what they're trying to understand and then provide that information and and escalating that to some kind of conversion like you know here's a informational pdf or 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 you know, do you can download, or you know, here you can leave an email, or you can schedule a demo, um, if if it's appropriate, right? We don't want you know, we actually have a very strong policy against not uh, being aggressive, but focusing on understanding the understanding the visitor and understanding what it is they're trying to do and understand and helping them uh, do so. And so, um, so I can't talk too much about kind of the tech, except to say, you know, that I was offered the role because of my experience in 
probabilistic modeling, probabilistic programming, and and working on learning graphical structures, and you know, or kind of you know, working with unstructured uh, uh, data, doing uns- un, you know unsupervised learning in discrete discrete structural spaces. So uh, you know, so take that for what it's worth. Um, and I and, and you know, in my role there, I focus very much on this challenge of building a SaaS product around and core AI tech, which is, you know, it's fantastically interesting and, and challenging problem. And I think a lot of, you see a lot of startups that are basically kind of investor funded research. And so like, you know, it's really, I feel really kind of fortunate to be at a, at a place where you have this very strong, uh, you know, cross pollination between building a, you know, a software product and, and building AI. And building, you know, and, and kind of research, you know, kind of research problems that happen, and when you're trying to solve an AI problem, and so um, that's that's and that's you know that's the intersection where I want to live at. To have all the all the challenges of of uh, doing a, a a SaaS business, and then and then plus you're pushing the envelope on on the AI as well. It's got to be a challenge. And we often talk about it's like you know so we have to solve all these little problems, and each one of these problems could be a paper. And we have to fit it, fit it within like, you know, kind of a scrum process of two week sprints and, uh, it's, uh, it, it, and, and work with, uh, full stack developers and, uh, product people. And it's, uh, it's really fun. Well, it's a fun place to work and, and we're hiring. So you guys, if you're interested, people should apply. Awesome. Okay. And then at the same time, uh, you're doing, you're doing alt deep, alt deep, your school of AI. Um, can you tell us about that? What is the, what is the idea with alt deep? Yeah, so the goal of AltDeep is to help quants, right? Just people who are who are working in quanta- uh, quantitative fields, you know, improve their practice, their reasoning, their decision making. Uh, the problem that I'm trying to solve is, you know, we work in this multidisciplinary field, and you know that, oh man, I need to know more about signal processing to solve this problem. It's like, oh, I need to, I wish I knew more about, you know, category theory, or I wish I knew more about, um, you know, causal causal machine learning uh and but it's really hard to do that in a, in a labor market where the fangs are uh, incentivize us to over specialize right and so we work in this multidisciplinary field and we feel like oh I, I need to learn more about you know signal processing ideas to solve this to solve my problems or like oh like they seem to have a nice framework for or a nice mental model for understanding this this domain but I have this background or, or I need to learn more about causal machine learning to solve this, this problem that I'm working on. But the labor market tends to, you know, it's driven by these fangs who encourage us to over-specialize, right? And just kind of get really good at using a specific set of tools and have a very narrow way of, of looking at things. And so the goal of Vault Deep is to make it easy for you to acquire mental models that people in other disciplines have already figured out. Uh, and so that's what we do. And we do that with uh, these workshops and courses that we run, we, uh, a newsletter and a community site. It's, clo- it's currently closed, but you know, I'll tell you what, if, if you want, I could send you a link that you can pass to your listeners who are interested. We're, we're going to open it up uh, soon, but for now, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an invite-only thing. That'd be awesome. Um, so, so can you tell us a little more about the, uh, the types of courses uh, that you have right now? And- we have a causal machine learning workshop that's run in three cohorts a year, uh, although we're going to increase that soon. So we should stay tuned there. We have a probabilistic modeling workshop. And so what that does is it takes uh, some of the traditional workflows that we've seen develop in Bayesian 
statistic, computational Bayesian uh, statistics, uh, and then uh, combining them with advances in uh, approximate inference, and uh, and and then extending them to some of the more kind of cutting edge approaches that we see, things like um, hierarchical implicit models, uh, you know, using simulators as without that don't have likelihood functions as models, and then still being able to do inference, uh, you know, uh, deep probabilistic models, uh, and so. So I, I, I kind of see that as you know, a, a, if you the, if you look at some of the best kind of textbooks on Bayesian inference, they tend to focus, they tend to ignore kind of the cutting edge of uh, machine learning, and so this one solves that problem. Uh, we have a let's see, we got a course called uh, Refactored Evolved Beyond a Glorified Curve Fitter, <laughs> and so this is. Um, so this is a course that is is takes a high level, looks at kind of cog side decision theory, uh, Bayesian modeling, not just like Bayes rule, but the actual kind of uh, high level concepts of uh, thinking Bayesian about a problem, and uh, you know takes some uh, takes a aspects of communications theory, uh, does a whole we were just talking about inductive biases, does this whole uh, breakdown of inductive biases across various problems in machine learning. Uh, and then some things that we have in the pipeline, we have a course on uh, uh, on building Ethereum dApps or Ethereum applications that is uh, that are focused on you know social decision science, behavioral science, uh, game theory. We have a course on applied category theory that's in the works, and so uh, another work, another course coming out on decision science. I took your um, causal modeling course. Mm -hmm. And it really opened my eyes to so many things in causality, and I feel uh, like I was missing out on a lot before I before I took that course. I love the course. Uh, I have this new vocabulary and skill set, and probably, but probably the most important thing for me is like the, just the mental frameworks, like you were saying, of how to think about this stuff and where you need it, and kind of seeing how how blind I was about this stuff before. So I, I chose your course one because my friend uh, Payam Musavi at MDA in Vancouver um, recommended it, and that's how I met you actually because because of him. So shout mm -hmm. out to to Payam. But also, I found you you have this ability to talk from all different sides. You're so you're like authoritative on the causal modeling side, and then also with the latest with uh, with machine learning methods and deep learning methods. And, and like you were saying, usually people are one or the other. And and just being able to easily converse about how these things relate and to do that with clarity. And so that that made it a great decision. I'm super happy I did it. Highly recommended. And and thanks for the uh, the excellent ex uh, experience with that course. Thank you. I'm um, I'm dark skinned so I'm not much of a blusher. But uh, if I were if I, if I were pale, I would be blushing. Ah, well, you deserve it. No, that was great. <laughs> that was very helpful to me, and uh, I'm sure to anyone who takes it. Um, so you also co-authored a well-known R package, uh, BN Learn. Uh, can you tell us tell us about that? Can we talk a bit about some tools? Uh, yeah, I was a contributor to BN Learn. I think co-author is strong because i um i mean the the main author had, has done the bulk of the work but um uh yeah so what my contributions to that package were really about uh so that so that package is generally about uh it's an r package that's generally focused on learning uh structure uh not necessarily causal structure and so what my uh but it, you know it, it can be used to learn causal structure but so what i did is my contributions there were mostly in terms of adding algorithms 
uh, for learning causal structure, particularly in a in a sequential decision making style, where like if, you know, let's say like I, you know, here and this thing is like I'm trying to learn a causal graph and. Um, the actions that I'm, I'm, I'm able to apply are interventions to nodes on the on the graph, and uh, let's suppose that each action costs you know ten bucks. And so, what is I want to kind of resolve all of the you know what is the path? What is the trajectory of actions that leads to fully uh, realizing the the causal graph? Um, uh, as inexpensively as possible. Uh, so like that was, uh, so I put a lot of abstractions that allowed you to do that kind of thing. That's uh, BN Learn. And uh, so, so can you tell us about uh, in other tools of your, your favorite tools in terms of, of causal inference and building these uh, data generating process models? Yeah, so I'm a big fan of probabilistic programming, particularly probabilistic programming languages uh, that use a deep learning kind of um, framework like PyTorch or TensorFlow. Uh, I'd, so I'm, so I'm going to plug uh, Pyro, which is a PyTorch-based uh, probabilistic programming language. So you can implement deep learning models, but within this kind of probabilistic modeling setting, it has abstractions for causal reasoning. It has an operator, that uh, a do operator that will, you know, have, contains a model of an intervention. Um, I'm close with... with some of the developers of that platform, um, Eli Bingham uh, is one of the core developers, and he's a member of the All Deep community. He participates in uh, a weekly causal probabilistic programming reading group that we run Mondays. There's a lot of really cutting edge uh, probabilistic model. Well, yeah, probabilistic modeling techniques in Julia that are really amenable to causal reasoning because, say, for example, they'll They'll allow you to have the build a generative model where the generator is a simulator, you and then give you an ability to kind of do inference on inference on that um, uh, on that model, which is non-trivial because simulators don't don't necessarily have likelihood functions, and so therefore it's hard to apply Bayes rule. You know, so if you can do that, and you if you all you need to do is add a little bit of causal semantics, and you can do some really powerful causal reasoning. Those tend to be much more. You know, those are those tools often comes out of, come out of research labs, and I haven't seen any become kind of widely popular yet. I tend not to focus on tools until there's a nice developer community behind them. And so, uh, but the the, the broader Julia community is a certainly uh, very healthy and, and, and growing quickly and, and doing a lot of interesting things. And so, um, yeah, that's that's kind of why. So you know, Pyro uh, and and in the Python environment and various things happening in Julia are where I'm focusing these days. So where where would you say we are with our understanding of of causal inference and the tools that we have? Are we as a, and I mean like as a community um, or where the field is, are we still in the kindergarten stage of just figuring out the basics or are we kind of close to having everything sorted out? Is there any way to, uh, do you have any comments on that? I'd say we're, we're, it's still pretty early days because there are a few libraries. So for example, um, a fellow named Amit Sharma over at Microsoft Research has a package called DoY, which allows you to do causal inference uh, without kind of having to understand, like you basically you specify directed graph that represents the causal assumptions of your system and then the thing that you're trying to infer and you provide it with the data and it 
takes care of the rest. And, and and so that's a really powerful tool, I think, if you're just kind of looking at bread and butter causal inference problems. Uh, if you're, you know, but let's say, for example, like something uh, that allows you to, I don't know, say, for example, in reinforcement learning, like you want to kind of spin up a an agent that is, you know, you're, you're going to try and learn a transition function using causal semantics, you would have to hand code that if you're, let's say you're going to try and do some kind of planning procedure where the the agent has a causal model about how its interventions are going to affect the environment, you would have to implement that. Let's say you're going to try and come up with a, a model that generates explanations based on a, on a causal model that would, uh, you would have to implement that. So like there's uh, I think we're very, very early stages in terms of tooling. So let's talk about um, causality and RL. Uh, and I know there's been a, a lot of papers that look at different aspects of the relationship between these two things. One very basic thing that I've, I've been kind of, I have has never been super clear to me is, uh, like, can we say that RL online RL seems to be inherently causal in the sense that it's, it's learning interventions by doing the interventions, by intervening, um, where it may be offline RL, it's trying to learn learn about these interventions, but not by doing them, just by observing some some fixed data. RL, that term means a lot. It, can, it depends on who you talk to, exactly what it means. Like, I want to take the broader definition that like that, that kind of Rich Sutton, Rich Sutton uses, which is that RL is means not just the method, like, you know, kind of optimizing reward, but also the class of problems that we want to solve. And if we, if we want to be even broader than that, we can just talk about kind of agent models, which you know, we're talking about agents making decisions, uh, like built right. You know, creating agents that can make decisions under uncertainty, um, particularly in sequ- in sequence. And I, and yeah, uh, it's the it's inherently causal in the sense that actions change the environment. And so, if there is an action, so in in, in causal inference, we have this very clear idea of what an intervention is and how it changes the data generating process, how it changes the underlying joint probability distribution created by that data generating process and that's exactly what an action is right and so we can now so to address your question about online versus offline it applies in both settings right so if i'm trying to learn an intervention distribution so like it's a probability of so some distribution of reward some uh, some conditional probability distribution on a reward function uh, given uh, i do some kind of action if I'm able to actually do actions, then I'm, you know, using interventions to learn an intervention distribution, uh, and that's and and that's and that's great. Um, if I'm observing other agents in, in an offline setting, uh, then I and, and then I have to kind of reason about, okay, well, should I be, you know, should I be treating these these agents' actions as 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 kind of active interventions, or should I be thinking of them kind of uh, these actions as like random variables, and and that you're just going to model them alongside? Like, there's there's some decisions that I have to make there, but you know, these are all kinds of things that we can define clearly within the framework of causal inference, and uh, you know, so if is there, is there some kind of confounder confounding variable that's causing this agent to be biased in the actions that it's making, and if if so, can I adjust for it? Um, yeah, so uh, I think it, it, it's it's relevant both in the online and offline setting. You know, there's Elias Barenboim has this uh, has plenty of examples in the online setting for uh, you know with banded algorithms where 
there's some confounding, you know, he, he talks about an example of a, a case where the bandit in this casino problem is changing its behavior according to the state of the subject uh, of the of the person who's playing the game for example and so it can kind of there's an adversarial and it's kind of an adversarial bandit and that you can solve this problem using kind of causal approaches you have a technique called causal thompson, thompson sampling um in the offline setting there's counterfactual reasoning right so like counterfactual means like you know i married this person and now i'm happy had i not married this person would i still be happy uh that so that's a counterfactual statement like you can do you can and you and you you, you, you would want a causal model to answer that kind of query in in reinforcement learning offline setting you say like okay well here's this agent in production making decisions according to this policy had it's been had it deployed a different policy would it have gotten higher reward so that's called you know counterfactual policy evaluation and so uh yeah and that's uh that's certainly kind of an offline problem but you can actually have it in an online setting as well actually so you could say for example the agent is i have been playing the game up to this time t and i got this reward at time t and at time let's say like at time t minus k I made this decision. Had I made another decision or had I done another action, uh, what might my reward be right now? And honestly, like that's how we as humans interact, right? Like we, when, when you're living your life, it's not based on a million past lives that you've lived and you've learned from all of them. It's like you're, you're learning as you go and you only get really one, you know, epoch. Yeah. So like uh, that's it. So you're making decisions based on counterfactual reasoning and you're trying to minimize counterfactual regret. We're, we're kind of in the continual learning um, regime, right. I suppose, in real life. So yeah, so like you know, so you know, online causal counterfactual reasoning is super important in that in that kind of regime. So do do we need to like how do we know when we need to worry about causality in RL? Like just on the very simple side, do we need do we need to think about it when we're in Atari and we're in in Majoku land, or can we just completely safely ignore it? Or is there something to be gained by um, by paying attention to causal inference even in in those simpler settings? All right. So the causal inference researcher in me says that, like, listen, you're dealing with intervention distributions, and you're but you're modeling observational distributions, right? And uh, and so, like, if there's any kind of confounding, your choice of the best action can be biased. And exactly how biased it it's not clear, but uh, it's always going to be a risk. The engineer in me says, fine, just kind of uh, use the uh, baseline method. And if it proves insufficient to the problem, then um, then try to enhance it with some kind of uh, causal model. I don't know what comes to mind is some work by vicarious AI. You know, there's some of their, their work on schema networks where they kind of, sh- they, they show you can not just have the, the agent learn a good policy with fewer with, with, with far less data, but if you change the game in a way it hasn't seen before, it's able to adapt because it has, you know, a causal model of how the game works. I, I love that paper. I've been a fan of that paper for ages and, uh, um, and it's so, it makes it so simple, right? And it's kind of how we think of the game, I think, right? How, like if you had a, asked a child to explain how do space invaders work, what is it doing? They'd probably come up with some kind of explanation. Similar yeah. To this yeah. Game, and, right? and, um, and, and, and if you uh, change the rules of the game, or you add, you know, you add some kind of variation to the rules, the human who is familiar with the old rules is is typically able to 
to make predictions for how things are going to work under the new rules. And it, it seems to me that in a lot of algorithms, you would want to you would want to be able to have that. But I, I don't know. I you know I'm not a. I mean, there are people who work on a lot of different practical reinforcement learning problems, and maybe like maybe there are some problems where that doesn't matter. Like the, the rules are always going to be the same, and that you know, and, and, you know if you want to handle interventions, you just you know you just treat interventions like a, a random variable in the system, and, and and just make sure that you simulate every possible combination um, and, and, and the training data. And so you know, I don't know, maybe that works in a lot of scenarios. Um, so yeah, the engineer in me says like you know. <laughs> do what you can get done quickly and, and, and works in a robust way and, and uh, lets you get to your next milestone. The causal inference researcher means says, hey, if you're working with interventions and, or actions are interventions, if you're working with an intervention distribution and you're trying to, to approximate them with, a pro- with, with just observations and you don't have an intervention model, then you could be biased. In fact, you could be severely biased and, and it could lead to catastrophe. I guess the other the other thing to mention here is that it's the Perlian causal models, like right, like causal graphical models, structural causal models. They are a special kind of probabilistic model, right? A, a special kind of generative model. There's a lot of work from the probabilistic modeling standpoint of uh, an agent models, right? So, like, you know, one thing you can do if you want to uh, optimize and uh, you know, an objective function is you, you know, have some function that takes an action and you find the argmax, right? But the other thing that you can do is treat it like a Bayesian inference problem. And so, like, this is this paradigm is called planning as inference. There's a class of researchers who work on applying uh, Bayesian or, or more general kind of probabilistic approaches to uh, uh, agent modeling. And you could take some of the the Perlian kind of structural causal models or uh, causal graphical models and, and implement them in those frameworks and then have the additional semantics of uh, causal semantics and, and, and then make some, um, uh, and then whatever, whatever advantages those probabilistic modeling approaches uh, provide, you can enhance them with some new capabilities if you have the causal uh, abstractions built in. Well, we had Taylor Killian on the show recently and he talked about how in some of his re- research um, applying uh, policies learned at one hospital to optimize treatment um, didn't work so well if you took it to another hospital that had a mm-hmm. different distribution of, of patients and and so these kinds of, these types of tools um, helped improve the mm-hmm. results there and I won't try to summarize that any further in your causality course you talk about this notion of free will in an agent can you remind us what do you mean by that and 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 how is that helpful beyond um, outside of philosophy, like does an Atari agent have this type of free will, or can we make like RL agents? Yeah, so with the this type of free will discussion of free will, of blame, of intention, of explanation. These are things that we would like to have in engineered agents that are making decisions under certainty. So why, you know, where does free will come up? You know, so if people are listening here, if they, if they kind of Google kind of causal decision theory, compare it to evidential decision theory. You know, this is, a, this is kind of an old argument in decision theory. And, you can, and they have problems like, you know, Newcomb's dilemma, for example, where you can show that you get different results under different procedures. And this, you know, to the idea of um, why a policy learned in one hospital doesn't transfer to another one, this, is, this would be a, dis, a setting where evidential decision theory failed and causal decision theory would succeed. And so the idea is simple. Uh, causal decision theory says that you can't model actions as 
random variables. You need to you need to model them as interventions. As as a an, an intervention is something that that is a an operation on a on the joint probability distribution between random variables. And even in the setting where you know you have a, a policy that's stochastic, right? So it's generating an a, a, an action. You know, in, in a causal modeling approach, we you know once the action is realized, like yeah, it's a stochastic output, but we're, but we, we don't treat it as a uh, as a random variable. We treat it as a as an operation. How does that apply to free will? The idea is that if an agent's actions are just some f- stochastic function of elements of its environment, so it's just a, it's just a random, like uh, my actions are just generated from a conditional probability distribution that's conditioned on elements, you know, the state of the environment. And then I'm really just kind of like this automata just reacting to things, right? As opposed to something, as something that's introspective and deliberate and, and choosing uh, my actions according to um, some, some, uh, some reasoning about how my actions are going to affect my environment. You know, so it's free will in the sense that you know, we might say like you know, an amoeba or a white blood cell that you, you watch in a, in a petri dish kind of making decisions and move around trying to absorb some kind of antigen or, 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 or food source or something like that. We, wouldn't, we typically wouldn't think of it as having free will. It's just kind of reacting to, to signals in its environment. And, and so like I mentioned, things like uh, regret and... Um, and blame, right? So, you know, the free will argument there is, you know, when we exp- uh, and explanations, right? So, when we explain why something happened, oftentimes we we del- we kind of oscillate between this idea of, you know, us being kind of passive reactors to our environment, right? Like, you know, use the Adam and Eve story is what I teach in the, in the course. So like, you know, when 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 God asks. Adam, why did you eat? The, why did you eat the, the apple? He says, oh, "Well, the woman that you you gave that you put here with me gave me the apple, and so I ate it." And then the woman says, "Well, um, the, the the snake uh, said it was good to eat, and so I ate it." Um, but when when but when Eve is considering whether to eat the apple, she's you know she's she's listening to what the snake says, but she's being deliberative. Deliberative, she's like you know, if I you know she's reasoning if you know, about the intervention, like if I eat this, then this thing will happen. Uh, the explanation that she gives her uh, and her decision uh, is actually kind of oscillating between that framing of the problem as as being an active agent and a passive agent. And so, this is important in a reinforcement learning setting. It's not just philosophy. It means that like. Uh, if I have a household robot that is, it's cleaning the house, but it, it you know, it, it does so in a way that it inconveniences me. And maybe it wakes me up in the middle of the night. Maybe it's, you know, running laundry when I'm taking a shower, right? And I go to the, and I go to the robot and I say, hey, don't do that, right? Well, the, ro- the robot now needs a reason, if it's going to improve in the future, it needs a reason why it wa- I don't want it to do that. It, you know, it could just kind of work on reinforcements, but, you know, it's probably going to get stuck in some kind of, uh, you know, it's going to probably going to get stuck in weird, weird behaviors. If, if, I, if it does that, it, you really wanted to do is reason why you were unhappy, right? Are you, and, and so it needs to kind of think about, uh, it needs to kind of think in terms of, I mentioned earlier, actual causality. It needs to think about like, okay, well, retrospectively, this happened, uh, was a, was a, which, which led that to happen. And so, uh, you know, so he's unhappy because I did this thing while he was showering. This is not to say that he doesn't want me to do this thing. 
at this time or at this, you know, at, 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 or at this, you know, or when he's, he, he, I just should not do this thing because, or when he's showering. And, th- and so I could, uh, and so I can update his policy accordingly. And so, you know, having an, uh, uh, this kind of, this discussion about, you know, these philosophical discussions kind of concern how we can create agents that can not just kind of react to plus or minus signals about whether an action was good or bad, but rather generate explanations for why an action was good or bad uh, or led to a good or bad outcome and, uh, and act accordingly. And this becomes really important in, particularly in settings where we have partial information and, and outcomes are, there's, a, you know, there's maybe there's a random element in the environment because, you know, like say for example, you're playing No Limit Texas Hold'em, right? Like that's the kind of game where, you know, if you lose, it, you could be playing an optimal strategy and still lose, and you can be playing an inferior strategy and still win, right? And so you want you want the you know if you can ex, if you can generate explanations for why you win or lose in, in a way that's robust to that kind of uncertainty, you know, you can you can cope with those partial information, um, uh, random, uh, you know, stochastic uh, settings. I guess in that example. The robot now needs to know about showers, which before maybe it didn't care about, wasn't part of its observation, was like an unobserved confounder. Would we say that? If the robot is going to generate an explanation as to why you are unhappy, it needs to, and the, and the real reason as to why you are unhappy is because you know it ran, you know, instead of washing clothes while you were in the shower, you know, then in order for it to land on that explanation, it needs to have a model that has showers and has a relationship between showers and clothes washing that shows that when the when the, when when you run a hot a hot uh, wash cycle when somebody's showering, they're going to lose hot water, right? And so like that's that's assuming a lot. But, uh, you know, maybe that's a Rich Sutton problem. Maybe we can brute force that. <laughs> maybe we can move on to the, the ICML workshop on causal RL by Professor Elias uh, Barenboim. Yep. And he's also from Purdue, I, I just realized. So I saw you covered uh, this on your Twitch channel. And by the way, we'll, we'll link to the Twitch channel and all the other links we talked about on, uh, on the episode page at ontalkrl.com. But um, so that was, that was a really intense lecture to cover tons of ground. Um, but could you, for me and my, our listeners, can you share a, a few takeaways, uh, from, from that workshop? Yeah. Uh, so I think that Elias has done uh, the most, more work than anybody in connecting causal inference, particularly Pearl, Pearly and causal inference. His, his advisor was Judea Pearl, or Yuda Pearl is how you pronounce his name, sorry, to, uh, uh, uh reinforce the learning problems. And, and yeah, so it, it, that workshop is kind of his overview of uh, breaking down reinforcement learning problems in terms of different causal terms. Uh, sorry, well, breaking breaking down reinforcement learning in causal terms into different sets of problems that you want to solve. Uh, and so it's yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, and he he updates it every time he gives it. Uh, so I think it's the second or third time he's given that talk. Yeah. So like that's you know on my Twitch channel I do a little bit of live coding, do a little bit of, of paper reading. But I you know one of the things I really like to do is live watch uh, a workshop or a or a uh, summary of a paper or you know a podcast on that's covering a paper or something like that. So um, yeah, that's 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 what you're talking about. That's what we, I did. I did a few Twitch streams covering covering that that workshop by Elias. I've been enjoying the t- Twitch streams and your your reading groups. Uh, yeah, we'll link to all that good stuff. Um, moving forward, so what does the future look like uh, for you? You got a, a lot of things going on. What are you looking forward to in the next year? And and uh, can you tell us a, a bit about your your path going forward? I, I like te- doing three things. I like I like engineering. I like teaching. I like writing. And I plan to do a lot more of that. All three of those. 
Um, when it comes to the engineering, I'm I'm very much focused on being at that intersection between AI and you know building SaaS product. Right. I think uh, we need more people who are willing to kind of get on the front line of that problem. They said software is eating the world, and they were hoping that AI would too. And we're hitting a whole bunch of problems when it comes to cost of training models and how robust they are after they, we've trained them, and trying to actually shoehorn these things into the the, you know, the past several decades of software engineering best practices is not really working. And so um, you know, that's and so that's a problem to be solved. But also um, we have hard researchy problems that we need to solve all the while getting feedback from customers and trying to make it so that uh, we actually get some product market fit. Uh, and so I, I think that is a really fantastic um, you know, problem space and I you know, encourage more people to think about it. Uh, in terms of teaching, I'm working on more, uh, on more coursework for Altdeep. Um, like I said, we're starting looking at some of these, the ways that we can uh, reconcile things from behavioral science and uh, or behavioral economics and connecting them to uh, Ethereum. Uh, we're looking at um, another workshop on applied category theory, uh, a few more items in the pipeline there. And in terms of writing, I really hope to be writing more. Uh, I have a newsletter that's um, fairly popular and I'm at, I'm at a weekly cadence now. I'd like, heck, I'd like to get it up to a daily cadence. One of the um, advisors, the uh, kind of the early members of the board at uh, Substack, that newsletter company, was an old mentor of mine from, when I, from my days in China. And uh, he has a really popular um newsletter called Sinicism and it's a daily it's a daily newsletter and it's uh it's a, I'd love to do be able to do that kind of thing with machine learning but you know there's only there's only that much time in a day so you know we also have this this grow, growing community and um, we're interested in getting more people to join up um, so uh, there's a lot of work happening there as well so many things happening on many fronts trying to narrow it down a little bit trying to learn how to say no but <laughs> it's tough <laughs> I look forward to it all there are links to everything will be in the episode page Dr. Robert Ness it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, having you on the show and chatting with you. Thanks so much for sharing your time uh, and your insight with uh, with myself and our listeners today. Thanks, Robin, for having me, and um, I really enjoyed this. And I I hope that you know I think if there's any community within the machine learning space where causal reasoning is going to be the killer app, it's going to be reinforcement learning. I'm not going to say that like the absence of the adoption of causal methods is kind of what's holding RL back from becoming kind of much more practical and applied. But I think that if people were to adopt the mental models that come with adopting this manner of thinking, then we would see a lot of breakthroughs. I'll leave with that. Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRLPodcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better. Thanks for listening.